Welcome to the Using the Whole Whale podcast, where we learn from leaders about new ideas and digital strategies making a difference in the social impact world. This podcast is a proud production of Whole Whale, a B Corp digital agency. Thank you for joining us. Now, let's go learn something. This week, this week on the nonprofit news feed, well, we're bringing some uh, news from the, the week of March 20th. And we're going to be kicking it off with some big news out of California regarding insulin manufacturing. I know. Follow me. You'll see. All right, George. I guess we're, we're selling out to big pharma, but actually not quite. We're selling out to nonprofit pharma today because the Newsom administration, Gavin Newsom, of course, governor of California, has announced a 50 million 10-year contract with nonprofit drug maker Civica RX to produce the state's own line of affordable insulin. Uh, the line is going to be called CalRx. Upon FDA approval, these insulins, which are expected to be totally interchangeable with the brand name insulins, will be priced at no more than $30 per 10 milliliter vial and $55 for a box of five pre-filled cartridges. It estimates that we could potentially be saving patients' out-of-pocket costs of up to $4,000 per year. And this is part of California's broader CalRx, quote, initiative to manufacture generic drugs under the state's label to disrupt the pharmaceutical industry to get more affordable uh, medicine to Californians who need it. There's plans to produce a generic version of Xone next. So, I mean, George, this is... This is awesome. This is like nonprofit innovation meets healthcare. It's disruptive. This is like public policy done well. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, if you look back, it was, I think, in 1921 where the history of insulin gets its start. And originally it was actually like synthesized randomly from a pancreas of a dog. And at the time, uh, diabetes was a death sentence. Uh, and then after this, you know, uh, amazing discovery, it, uh, it then made it into large-scale production with Eli Lilly. And then soon enough, it was able to supply North America. They have evolved it to be longer-lasting and more effective. But unfortunately, they've also made the price exorbitant, uh, so much so that, you know, stories... Uh, very sad stories of, of families that are living at the margins essentially then have to, you know, decide if they want to pay their rent or pay for insulin for their children. And this is something that is easy enough to manufacture, has been in the public sphere for over 100 years now. And, and frankly, this is the right step. And I think you do need a nonprofit arm here where you don't have shareholder value to drive up the cost of, of insulin shots. And, and so I think you're going to see a lot of families helped by this. And curiously, I'm wondering if there are other states that look at this and say, I'm like, wait a minute, we could actually save money with regard to, you know, healthcare costs because of the way insulin is being uh, managed. What I think is really going to happen is that, you know, the, the major suppliers are going to drop their prices. We've already seen that. And so insulin will become uh, affordable uh, and, and meet the actual expense of creating it rather than 
the sort of predatory pricing, frankly, that we've seen over the past decades. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be interesting to see how the introduction of this generic product impacts the market vis-a-vis those other manufacturers. But something we'll definitely keep an eye on. Um, This is something we've talked about before on this podcast, Civica RX before, um, and I'm sure we'll hear from them again. So something to look forward to. But George, I want to take us uh, also staying in that side of the world a little further north because our next story, as reported by Reuters, uh, is titled, What is the Willow Project in Alaska and why do green activists oppose it? So the Willow Project is ostensibly a project to allow oil drilling in previously protected oil reserves. This was signed off last week by the Department of the Interior. It should note that it was, this lease was, this this plan was agreed on at a much smaller version of what was originally asked by the oil drilling uh, companies, but it still means more oil drilling on previously untouched land. A lot of activists oppose it. The Biden administration has announced there would be additional restrictions and I guess to kind of counteract this in the Arctic to oppose the drilling, but you still have uh, previously untouched land that is now been given the green light for oil drilling. And there's a lot of, there's been a lot of activist buzz around this and has been uh, quite a story in the environmental um, activism circles of the past couple of weeks. George, what's your take? I think if Russia had not invaded Ukraine, I'd be curious in that universe if this was approved at this level, because it's it's hard to talk about the need for climate investment and the curtailing of fossil fuels on one side of your platform and then turn around and do this. Um, however, if you have you know a humanitarian crisis across the ocean that is you know causing the U.S. to need to deliver. And supply, frankly, Europe with gas. You know, it's, this is a; these are when hard decisions happen. And, and so, I think, you know, whether or not you can balance those things is tough. But I think environmental activists have a long, uh, a long hard road on this one uh, because this is clearly, you know, based on the news that we're seeing going through. You know, so absolutely, I agree with you. It's a little hard to kind of uh, rectify that little cognitive dissonance there. But I agree, the global energy narrative has shifted over the past year because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine disrupting markets globally. And I'm sure that this is this is a, a tense decision that the Biden administration, I sure bet, didn't want to have to make. But nevertheless, here we are. But George, I'm going to keep us on our world tour across the country, across the world, because we are going to Africa, just like Mr. Beast apparently did in a new video. So in this uh, article from BuzzFeed, I'm not going to call it a news article. It's a, it's a BuzzFeed listicle <laughs> style article. But it brings us to a part two of a Mr. Beast philanthropy rant. Here's the premise. Mr. Beast uh, teamed up with a nonprofit in South Africa to give, uh, quite frankly, impoverished children shoes. 
there's a lot of threads on this. And uh, Mr. Beast it kind of runs his channel through philanthropy. Um, he has his main channel, which kind of veers on philanthropy. It's like giveaways. And then he actually has a philanthropic channel with a chart that also does these philanthropic endeavors. He, Mr. Beast, did team up with an actual nonprofit to deliver these shoes. But there is a little bit of controversy around this. And there's a couple different angles of things I think we can parse out. One of which is this is kind of reminiscent of the Tom Shoes debacle, which I do think actually gets misrepresented in the mainstream narrative. But it very much is kind of reminiscent of the poverty porn style videos that international NGOs have kind of shied away from producing of late. So this touched nerves with uh, a lot of different people. And then people on the other side who said, hey, Mr. Beast is giving away free shoes. Why is that a bad thing? So there's a lot of different angles here. Maybe, George, I'll get your take and then I'll offer my take because I, I have some spicy takes. Yeah, I know you have uh, a volume of research. I'm actually very interested in the sort of narrative that you have. I, okay, so we've talked about whether or not and they, and they call this poverty porn, right? Using stakeholders that you are helping as the subject of your video with uh, questionable compensation, right? They are essentially fodder for attention, which is what you trade on on YouTube. Mr. Beast, as a reminder, is the most popular, I believe, on YouTube at present. And in doing this, you are you're running a business. And one of the byproducts of that business is that there are now 20,000 pairs of shoes uh, in, in the system. Uh, what I'll say is, as a positive, he worked with a nonprofit rather than parachuting in. He worked with a local nonprofit that was working on this. Uh, and so what is the long-term effect of that? Is that nonprofit able to continue the support? Because after that pair of shoes, I don't know, goes away or those children go to the next level, like there are second order effects of this and you don't, don't have to look too far back other than, you know, the Tom Shoes era where this is the narrative. Uh, I think another important one is whether or not you just sort of blindly judge the outcome and sort of say, oh, look, there's 20,000 new pairs of shoes for children. Good thing. I think if you really look at the past couple decades of scrutiny on foreign aid, the process by which we help each other, and especially wealthy countries help in, in Africa, and I'm going to put quotes around help, actually matters quite a bit. And there are really good critiques in here, such as talking about how Africa is held in an indefinite chokehold based on this type of aid, because it is counterproductive to the economy supporting itself and to sort of subsisting on handouts from, you know, YouTubers, from billionaires, from maybe well-intentioned marketing efforts of companies. But the, the question is, what is the long-term net effect uh, of this? And sometimes doing that one moment of good has very unfortunate second-order effects. So it, it is complicated, but again... The, the problem is summarized kind of in that poverty porn element where there's a, a twinge when you see white saviors running in with a bunch of free stuff for 
a a population that is is the subject of a video designed to get attention and run ads against it. Have you done a good thing? Yeah, George. This I think you've touched on a lot of key points and brings us back to our debate. There's a couple threads I want to pull here because I've thought pretty deeply about this. One is just from a pure effectiveness standpoint, how how effective is uh, giving twenty thousand shoes to children? Um, we don't. I don't know the effectiveness of this this project, right? But what's important to know is that in international development, good organizations will have dedicated teams that do monitoring, evaluation, and learning. They will go in and they will see what were the impacts of this program holistically looking at the society. Um, did it improve uh, kids' educational outcomes? Did it improve their safety? Um, did it not negatively impact local markets? Those are questions you have to ask before you just kind of dump large quantities of stuff on a people that may not have necessarily asked for it. Takes us back to the Tom Shoes example, which is uh, kind of a famous example of ineffective philanthropy gone wrong. Tom Shoes is a fellow B Corp. I'll throw that out there. They had a buy one, get one model in which you bought a pair of shoes. They would donate a pair of shoes to Africa. And essentially what they were doing was they were just giving away free shoes to Africa. Um, it, it kind of, the narrative got a little bit <laughs> out of control, I would say. They got really, really uh, uh, lambasted by people saying, you know, totally messing with the markets and all this other stuff and the kids weren't wearing them and it was an ineffective program. And it was an ineffective program. We in the show notes can link to an article, folks are interested, of the researchers who went in to measure the effectiveness. And they said, yeah, it wasn't effective, but it wasn't also as that harmful as people were saying. But the key there was Tom's had the wherewithal to say, hey, we are going to hire professional researchers who specialize in measuring the impact of international development program to measure the outcome. And the problem with this shoes thing is, and Mr. Beast, is there's not really a ton of evidence that that's happening. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. So that's one thing. The second thing is, to the narrative point, George, that you were mentioning, there is a long and complicated history with between the continent of Africa and aid organizations. And a lot of it stems from the fact that Africa was only decolonized largely in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, in many of ours, if not our parents' lifetimes. That is a recent history to this continent. And decolonized, as in they were active colonies of these places, of Europe, of Britain, etc. And the legacy of aid is one that is tinged with that colonial legacy. And when you go in and you make these videos, the white savior element is I think a lot more important and kind of serious, particularly in Africa for that historical reason. And that's in some ways what makes this video kind of uncomfortable for me. And I think makes generated a lot of the criticism in a way that another generous video that Mr. Beast made, say he films in his local community in California, whatever, may not generate. So like that historical element is key. And I'm going to stop talking because I've been talking for a while, but one book I will recommend listeners who are interested check out is this book called Dead Aid, 
why aid is not working and how there is a better way for Africa by Dambisa Moyo, who is an African writer and writes about how aid has kind of perpetuated some of the economic hardships of the continent. Um, so there are kind of counter narratives to this. I work with nonprofits. There's many amazing international NGOs, but I'm not sure that Mr. Beast hit the mark on this one. The only nod here is the fact that he worked with, I think it was the Barefoot organization, but there is a footprint on the ground there, pun intended, I guess, with regard to shoes, their effect for children who, uh, according to this reporting, have a hard time getting to school if they don't have shoes. And, you know, I remember the, the sort of the, like, if it's in your mind, like, well, wait a minute, you know, how could, how can this go wrong? Like there, there are, there are certainly many ways, including the, the disruption of ongoing ability for, let's say, shoemakers <laughs> or shoe infrastructure, right? What you just did is glutted the market for the next, hmm, let's call it 12 months. And that means people on the ground that were developing shoes at a reasonable pace, perhaps. No longer will there be any money for local groups to be working to develop the, the economy and the solutions necessary for it for 12 months. And then all of a sudden, what's going to happen? Those shoes are going to disintegrate. Okay, now let's just roll back the clock. What happens if those shoes hadn't been there? There would have been a baseline level of economic growth and local market solutions that had sustainable amounts of shoes being developed over time. So unless he's going to show up every year indefinitely to take this place, that's just one second order effect. And that took me 30 seconds to think about. The unintended consequences of flooding markets with supply is very dangerous because you can, you can do more harm. And yes, the other narratives are there too. But even just technically speaking, if you were of the mindset of like, oh, what could be wrong about that? That can be wrong. You destroy a local's ability to generate the asset at a, at a reasonable market level, leading to long, longer term pain. Yeah, I agree with you. It creates a shock to the system. And I, I think another and another thing of that is the narrative element of that is, has Mr. Beast ever been to this place before? Will he ever be back to this place? Probably not, you know? So, like, I think that's kind of an element. It's like a one-off in, like, the most dramatic way. Uh, but I guess we'll see. We'll stay tuned. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, is there an element of sour grapes from organizations that are doing great work and don't have this level of attention. I don't know, in terms of those critics, if I were to parse through them, there's probably some of that. Is there a lesson, though, to be learned about storytelling? What is he doing that is telling the story of effectively, you know, nonprofit work that is breaking through? Now, he has an unfair advantage of a massive audience ahead of the curve, but there are still things to learn here. And if you don't see that, and if you couch it all as, you know, turn it off, demonize it, don't, you know, don't take a look. But look, you can't argue with the fact that tens of millions, I think it was over like 45 million when I last checked, ha had viewed this. There, there is a seed of useful information in here that should not be thrown away. I agree. I agree. Many lessons to be learned. All right. I think that that is an excellent segue to our next story, which uh, thinking about nonprofits and the people who work in them, uh, which is what we do I guess, all the time with this podcast, 
is this comes from the nonprofit Times. And the headline of this story is that new salary and benefits report from the nonprofit Times shows a 6% salary hike across the sector. George, what do you think about this? Keeping up with inflation or uh, what's happening here? I mean, yeah. I mean, you're trying to keep up with inflation. I Also, a nod to the nonprofit Times for running this uh, annual salary and benefits survey. I think you can, you can find it in our show notes links. Uh, it said 60% of nonprofits offer flexible work arrangements, which is interesting. Employee turnover uh, among organizations surveyed was uh, 13%, which is really impressive. You know, uh, employees spending an average of 6.8 years at an organization. Uh, and, you know, in terms of financial benefits, 36% of nonprofits offer health care, flexible spending accounts, FSA. Uh, it looks like it also included salaries, salary increases for 232 specific job titles within 28 job families. So pretty broad, but interesting um, as some benchmarking work done by the nonprofit times. Absolutely. Great to see. Really impressive numbers for the sector. And speaking of nonprofit success, I have a feel-good story, George, that I think is uh, going to be really, really enjoyed by the listeners of this podcast. And that is that Habitat for Humanity of the Charlotte region, Habitat Charlotte for short, disclaimer, a former client of ours has celebrated our, their, I should say, 4,000th family serve. So over the past 40 years, Habitat Charlotte has had the privilege, quote, of working with families across the Charlotte region through our Money Matters Financial Literacy, New Home, and Critical Home Repair programs. They are so grateful to every partner, staff member, and volunteer who had a hand in making this possible. Um, for those who don't aren't familiar with the Habitat model, um, there is the National Habitat Organization, but most of the implementation happens via the regional, local implementing organizations. So there's Habitat for Humanity of the Charlotte region, New York, et cetera, et cetera. And those are distinct individual organizations within the Habitat network that just do really phenomenal jobs. So great to see the success from an organization that just kills the game. They do awesome work. This is a good reminder, too, for inside of your organizations to enjoy and celebrate those milestone moments, right? What is special about, you know, this particular Tuesday? Well, it turned out that we were we have been counting our impact and we have an opportunity to celebrate a milestone. You can plan ahead for your milestones when you know about when you have helped a certain number of stakeholders and, and make it an event, make it celebrated by the team for press and it's and it's helpful. All right, Nick, I have a, I have a question. You know I have a question. Oh boy. Why uh, why did the sushi restaurant's matching gift program fail? The sushi restaurant's matching gift program fail? I don't know. I think you do know this one. Uh, but it was fishy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Just getting better sometimes. All are, right. Are like, they? <laughs> it's getting tough. I get to do this every week. They're not going to get better. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy them, though. I appreciate you. Well, Nick, thanks for the hot takes. You, were, you came prepared today. I'll say that. I came to play. Always a good time. Thanks, George.
This has been Using the Whole Whale podcast. If you want to keep learning more about these topics and others, head on over to wholewhale.com university to keep learning with us. Thanks as always to gregthomasmusic.org for his tunes that underwrite our tracks. They're fantastic. Hope you're doing well, Greg. And just a reminder, subscribes really help us on any platform that you listen to us on. Please give a thought to click and subscribe and maybe even a comment because we like hearing from you. 